Thank you for joining us for the Ravenswood Baptist Church podcast with Pastor Dustin Moore. We are a Bible-believing, grace-driven church located on the north side of Chicago. As a church, we are passionate about making disciples of all people for the glory of God. If you would like more information about our ministry, visit ravenswoodbaptist.org. Now, here's Pastor Dustin. John 2. Uh, let me uh, just kind of make a, a few remarks before we jump into the text. At the dismissal, at the conclusion, I should say, of service today, before we conclude, uh, we uh, will invite everybody. Everybody will stay. We'll, uh, it'll, it won't be a lengthy uh, thing, but uh, we will take a moment. We talked to you a couple weeks ago about uh, myself, our pastoral uh, team, our, our church leadership uh, has recommended after uh, oh, uh, eight months now of um, uh, vetting, talking to, uh, walking through the process uh, for Paul Brown to be recommended to the church for a vote to be a deacon. We'll talk about that at the end of the service. But I wanted you to be aware of that. Uh, Paul is not here today uh, because he and Ashley are away celebrating their, their uh, I think, sixth wedding anniversary. And um, so this is a good week for There's nothing worse than being present when people vote on whether they like you or not. Um, uh, so I was glad I wasn't here when I vote, was voted on to be pastor. 97% of the church uh, voted uh, a yes vote for me to come, and I've been eyeing the 3% for seven and a half years. I've been looking for you, and I think I know who you are. Uh, I think I know, and you'd be ready. Uh, I'm just kidding. Uh, but, uh, but in all seriousness, um, I, I want you to know before we get to that point, I won't do a lot more talking about that, but we, it's a resounding uh, recommendation from us to the character of Paul. We know that nobody is perfect. <laughs> if that's your standard of expectation for people, you're going to be sorely discouraged and disappointed. We love that that Paul, two things, he's already serving, and that's the role of a deacon is to serve. He serves in our youth ministry. He serves on our media team. He's very faithful to men's fellowships and engagement with the men's ministry of the church. On top of that, we do feel it's very important. Uh, Paul is uh, younger than me. Uh, he will be our youngest deacon. But we have people in our church who are in that age bracket that as a deacon, Paul and Ashley can serve and help and encourage. And we think that to be an important, uh, to have a church with a diversity of age and leadership. Uh, now, we're not nominating any 10-year-olds for being deacons anytime soon to represent the kids. But uh, but Paul does help represent our youth ministry and some of the younger couples in our church, single adults, he'd be an available deacon for them. And so we're, we're thrilled for that. Uh, and I'll tell you more about that at the end of the service. I uh, found myself this week in preparing for the, today's message um, to, um, to really miss the traditional Christmas texts. I haven't preached this year on... Um, Luke 2, yet. Uh, might add that to the end of this sermon. Uh, but Luke 2, I haven't preached yet uh, on uh, Luke chapter 3 even, or uh, Luke chapter 1, or John chapter 1 per se. Uh, and so I know that the series, the nature of the series has been different uh, than maybe even what I prefer. Uh, I like going to those, what I would call classic Christmas texts. Uh, but I hope I hope at least that you have been encouraged through this series to see that, and the point of this has been to see that the baby 
The baby in the manger uh, is just as human as you. Now he has, yes, he is truly God as well, but he is just as much man, just as human as we are. And I think it might be nice for us this Christmas season to when we go through all of the emotions that we've talked about, um, the emotional anxiety and worry and fear and struggles that we talked about in week one, uh, to remember uh, that we looked and we considered whether or not Jesus also wrestles with his emotions. Last week, we saw the joy of Jesus. And I, I hope you have uh, enjoyed uh, there's that word joy, enjoyed this Christmas season. Uh, the older I get, uh, the faster it gets here, and the faster it goes away. And I kind of wish it would slow down, uh, because as it goes fast, so do my kids. But the joy of Christmas is a big part of that, right? Interestingly today, though, we're going to consider the anger of Jesus. The anger of Jesus. And maybe this is a unique one, because next week, we'll look at Jesus as the man of sorrows, uh, the compassion of Christ, the heart of Christ to sufferers, and how Christ's compassion helps us to be also compassionate. But today, uh, the anger of Jesus. And I'm curious, I, was, uh, I wrote the, the intro portions of this text, this message, while I was uh, sitting on an airplane. Nothing makes me more angry than flying. Airports. Um, I uh, was rushing to catch an early morning flight on uh, Wednesday uh, to come home, and I um, it was about 4.45 in the morning. I had dropped my rental car off at the rental car place. I had walked, I don't know, it felt like a mile or half mile to the security location. I'm standing in security, and again, it's 4.45. Nobody's happy to be there. Nobody, legitimately, not even the people that work there are happy. And my Apple Watch starts buzzing. Well, my phone is in the bin going through the machine. And I'm thinking, who is calling me at 4.45 in the morning? It's 3.45 back home. Who's calling me? And I look, and it was a local number. And I got a voicemail, and I got a security that said, Mr. Moore, you did not leave your keys in the rental car. Please come back to the rental. And I threw my... I'm just kidding. I... I and I got on the plane and I thought, I am so angry at myself because I had to go back to the rental car place and go all the way back to security. And it was an appropriate time for me to write the introduction to today's message. And it made me ask this question of myself and of you. Were you angry this week? Were you angry? Were you angry often this week? Don't answer that out loud. Surely looking back for some of us, maybe not all of us, there was some moral justification to our anger. A moral justification to our anger. At the same time, I think if we're all honest, I'm sure there were moments where we could easily confess that our anger was selfish and self-centered. I'm sure we could confess that. Because of this, the anger that we may often have, the anger others force on us, make this a helpful topic, the topic of anger. 
and in considering this in light of the incarnate Christ. We often have negative reactions to anger. The anger that we see from others, for sure. We may, we may even, this time of year, consider an angry person to be a Grinch. Right? He's going to be on the screen. There he is. Right? Maybe we consider an angry person to be a Grinch. Now, I bring this message today with the hopes that I can draw your attention to truthfully consider the anger of Jesus in light of Scripture. David Lamb says, and I gave this quote to you in week one, we are not comfortable with an emotional God. It is unsettling. It's unsettling. And yet throughout the Bible, we are confronted with God's anger and God's wrath. So how do we define anger biblically? I think the Easton's Bible Dictionary helps us summarize this when we have these words. The emotion of instant displeasure on account of something evil that presents itself to our view. In itself, it is not an original susceptibility of our nature, just as love is. It is an original susceptibility of our nature, just as love is. And it is not necessarily sinful. It may, however, become simple when causeless or excessive or protracted. I think that's a helpful definition of the emotion of anger. But what brings about anger? There's a couple good books I'd recommend to you. If there was space on the handout, I would have recommended them. But maybe for you, maybe for somebody you love, maybe uh, if there's someone in your life that truthfully, honestly confesses their, their battle with anger, these books might be helpful. Christopher Ash wrote a book called The Heart of Anger that I have found to be very helpful. He says this, he says, anger arises in my heart when something I value is either threatened or taken from me. If I feel I may lose it, I become angry in anticipation of loss. If I have lost it, I am angered by actual loss. And I think that to be a Fair explanation. Ed Welch wrote a book, my favorite on the topic. His book's called A Small Book About a Big Problem. He says, while anger is common, it also destroys. Defining anger, he goes on to say, the right way is vital. If we define anger as my justifiable response to dumb people, then we are destined to be more angry. Anger indicts others and acquits itself. Anger indicts others and acquits itself. It says, anger says, you wronged me and I am right. Christopher Ash, I mentioned his book, The Heart of Anger. He goes on to lay out four types of treasures that trigger our anger. He says, when these treasures have been threatened, anger often follows. And he gives these four treasures. The first one is control. I am angry, he says, because you frustrate my control. Or, so it's control. Secondly, possessions. The longing to own things may, when obstructed, lead to anger. In the marriage relationship, he says, another trigger for anger is, is sexual intimacy and delight. 
He said the righteous anger of a wronged spouse in adultery, along with the twisted evil anger of a sexual abuser. These are triggers to anger. And the fourth one he gives is the one of reputation. My pride has been wounded, so I am now angry. And each of these, Ash gives biblical support from narratives in the Bible as well as the book of Proverbs. And I won't spend uh, so much more time on this. But with anger, there's a way that we understand this, and I think it's good for us to process biblically. Considering this emotion, considering the Bible, asking questions like, is there a good kind of anger? Is there a righteous anger, a holy anger? How might God's anger, God's wrath, be different from our anger? And in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus pressed on something that was in the Ten Commandments, in the, 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 the very core of the Old Testament Mosaic Law, and he reminded the listener about the commandment against anger, except one of the Ten Commandments does not, not, does not say, Thou shalt not be angry. But Jesus presses further on it in Matthew 5, when he says this, he says, You've heard that it was said by them of old time, Thou shalt not kill. And whosoever shall kill shall be in danger of the judgment. But I say unto you that whosoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment. And whosoever shall say to his brother, Reka, shall be in danger of the council. But whosoever shall say, Thou fool, shall be in danger of hellfire. So there's a, a heart behind, Thou shalt not kill, that is regarding anger without a cause. Anger. And you might be sitting there saying, oh, anytime I'm angry, there's a good cause. The danger for us is that in our fallen nature, we often lack the self-awareness to admit that the cause is actually control. Or the cause is wounded pride. Or the cause is I didn't get what I wanted. And so anger arises. And what we have to confess, be willing to confess today, or none of this is going to be valuable to you, is that the way in which we often become angry is nothing short of pure selfishness. Pure selfishness. In fact, the kind of selfish anger that often arises in our hearts is spoken of by the Apostle Paul when he says, in two different places. The first in Ephesians 4, he says, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice. Let this kind of sinful anger be put away. Colossians 3, he says, now, but now put, but now you also put off all these anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy communication out of your mouth. Put them off, like taking off a coat. Put it off you. It's not to be a part, this kind of sinful anger of the Christian's emotion. Paul warns about this. In Galatians chapter 5, when he writes about the, the works of the flesh juxtaposed to the fruit of the Spirit, he doesn't name anger, but I want you to see the implication here when he says, Now the works of the flesh are manifested, which are these? Adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lasciviousness, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, variance, emulations, wrath, 
strife, seditions, heresies, envyings, murders, drunkenness, revelings, and such like, of the which I tell you before, as I have also told you in time past, that they which do such things shall not inherit the kingdom of God. The warning to an uncontrolled selfish anger is serious in the New Testament. Paul tells Christians to put off all these things, but then he says in Ephesians 4 to put on something. And this is the tie to our message today with the topic of anger. He says in Ephesians 4, and that ye put on the new man, which after God is created in righteousness and true holiness. So while we put off the anger, wrath, and malice, we put on, what did he say to put on? The new man. The man that after God is created in righteousness and true holiness. And so when we think about this, we're going to see how we are technically, in the words of Romans 13, 14, we are put, we are told to put on the Lord Jesus Christ. That is what Paul means by put on the new man. He's saying, like you put on a coat, like you put on your clothing, put on, clothe yourself, he says, with the Lord Jesus. Put on the new man and make no provision for the flesh to fulfill the lust thereof. So, so my friends, when we think about anger and the emotions of Jesus, to put on the Lord Jesus means that if we're going to understand the emotion of anger scripturally, we have to know what made Christ angry. What made Jesus angry? And here's the point of this. We're to put off the selfish, self-centered anger, and we're to put on the Christ-centered anger. And so, we ask the question, when we think of the emotions of Jesus, was he ever angry? Is it possible that I can have an anger that looks like Christ's anger? And what was it that made Jesus angry? So quickly today, we're going to look at three examples, three different texts, three examples. The first thing I want you to see here in Mark chapter 3, and I'll be I want to dig in here on this one, is I want you to see Jesus' anger at hardened hearts. His anger at hardened hearts. I want to read the story so you get the narrative here, there in Mark chapter 3. And he entered again into the synagogue, and there was a man there which had a withered hand, and they watched him, whether he would heal him on the Sabbath day, that they might accuse him. And he saith unto the man, which had the withered hand, stand forth. And he saith unto them, Is it lawful? Is it lawful to do good on the Sabbath days or to do evil, to save life or to kill? But they held their peace. And when he had looked round about on them with anger, being grieved at the heart, for the hardness of their hearts, he saith unto the man, Stretch forth thine hand. And he stretched it out, and his hand was restored whole as the other. And the Pharisees went forth and straightway took counsel with the Herodians against him, how they might destroy him. Now, there's some familiarity here for us because we were here this year already. Jesus enters into the synagogue in Capernaum. The text 
says there's that man that's got this withered, he's suffering from a withered hand. We don't really know what all that means, but, it, but you can definitely see this man has a hand that doesn't work properly. The religious leaders are standing by. They watched Jesus to see if he would heal on the Sabbath. And they, they're pressed with a question from Christ in verse number 4 when Jesus says unto them, Is it lawful to do good on the Sabbath days or to do evil, to save life or to kill? Jesus' question here, let me be, I want to be efficient with how I explain this, is about the lawfulness of taking an action in a good or bad way. To save a life or to kill if that's needed. And the specifically with the Sabbath, and the law, or the, 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 the question about lawfulness is demands an answer from the Jewish law. It's called the the halakha. The word halakha means the way, the path that one walks. And so, Jesus is asking them to speak to the halakha. What does the way tell us in regards to saving a life or killing? They want no part in debating it with Jesus. And so Jesus is asking them, are we allowed to do good on the Sabbath? On the Shabbat, are we, are we specifically going to save a life? if that is necessary. But these religious leaders have a disordered compassion. How do they respond? The Bible says they held their peace. They didn't answer Jesus. Matthew notes that in light of this scenario, Jesus says this. He says, What man shall there be among you? Matthew 12, 11, That shall have one sheep, and if it fall into a pit on the Sabbath day, Will he not lay hold on it and lift it out? How much then is a man better than a sheep? Wherefore, it is lawful to do well on the Sabbath days. So the religious leaders would rescue a sheep, but they did not want to see a man have his hand, a man who's been suffering. They did not want to see this man who had suffered be healed. They thought... Well, he's been suffering for many years. Why heal him now? Why can't we wait till tomorrow? And that type of thinking is what angered Jesus. That they wanted this man, or they thought that this man, should even suffer another minute. The hardened heart of the religious leaders, had, they had no compassion on this desperate man. Look at Luke 6, verse 7. And the scribes and Pharisees watched him, whether he would heal on the Sabbath day, that they might find an accusation against him. But he knew their thoughts and said to the man that, which had the withered hand, rise up and stand forth in the midst. And he, rose, and he arose and stood forth. Then said Jesus unto them, I will ask you one thing. Is it lawful on Sabbath days to do good or do evil? To save life or destroy it? And looking round about him, Upon, upon them all, he said unto the man, stretch forth thy hand. And he did so. And his hand was restored whole as the other. And they were filled with madness and communed one with another what they might do to Jesus. This is all, uh, stay with me, this is all in light of a man who suffered being healed. And Jesus is angered at these hardened hearts. Now let me give you something to consider here. The Pharisees, you need to understand this, 
the Pharisees are not anti-health. They're not anti-healing. They just want it done on a different day than the Sabbath. In their mind, intentions are good. They're good. But here's the point. Jesus is willfully and emotionally biased toward human flourishing. Let me say that again for you. Jesus is willfully and emotionally biased toward human flourishing. And so Jesus consistently bends vital Sabbath law that are man-written, man-made, and he bends them toward life-restoring, life-enhancing, life-flourishing practice. And here's the point of this. Listen, Sabbath rest, which is what these religious leaders were fighting about. Sabbath rest meant to restore everything in line with God's purpose for creation. So in Jesus' view, in Jesus' view, we should not split hairs over what one should do on the Sabbath. If an action like reviving a man's withered hand can be done on the Sabbath in the synagogue, what a better place and time to do it because the point of the Sabbath was to bring men in line with God's purpose for creation. And so what a better Sabbath moment than to take a man who can't lift his hand in worship to God, to take a man who can't use his hand to work, and to restore that to wholeness. What a better day and moment to do it than on the Sabbath. But the, the hardened hearts deserve the passionate, righteous anger of Jesus against those who resist God's purposes. This was the whole point of the Sabbath. And they had built their, their moralistic fence. And what they had done is made their own hearts harder to what God was doing. I want to say to you, keep in mind when we talk about the Pharisees, we would contradict Jesus' own point here if our own hearts become hardened against Pharisees. Right? Christians get annoyed with Pharisaical Christians. Hardened hearts towards Pharisees is the same as the hardened Pharisee heart towards God's purpose. So I ask you a question. Jesus is angered here at hardened hearts, and so in light of this, the question for us is, are we righteously angry at our own hard hearts? I didn't get to anybody else yet. Let's just start with us. When your heart is hardened to the purposes of God, does that anger you? Do you care that much? Or do you care more about the other person's hardened heart? Does it grieve you as it grieves Jesus to see hardened hearts? Does it grieve you to see the hardened hearts of your children, your spouse, a brother or sister in Christ that you love whose heart has become hardened? See, when we think about the anger of Jesus, Jesus isn't angry about a car blocking us in in the parking lot. He's grieving over hard hearts. 
Jesus isn't mad because he left his keys in the rental car. He's got to go all the way back and then back through security. Jesus isn't, he's not mad at traffic. Jesus is grieved to the point of righteous anger when hearts towards God's purposes are hardened. I was testing myself against this, and I'll just tell you, there's three questions on the test, and I had already missed the first one. Because this is an indicting moment about my own, my own emotions. I ask you to prayerfully consider it this morning. Do hardened hearts, specifically yours first, and yes, even those that are in your life that you love, is there a righteous anger at that hardness? That's what made Christ angry. Secondly, we see Jesus' anger at God dishonored. Jesus is angry at God dishonored. I want you to look over at Matthew 21. Matthew 21. If you have your Bibles, turn over there. There's your handout. Matthew 21. Here we see the second time. I didn't read the first time that's there in the top of your notes from John chapter 2. Early in Jesus' ministry, he had cleansed the temple. Now at the end of his life here in Matthew 21, we see this, verse 12. And Jesus went into the temple of God and cast out all them that sold and bought in the temple and overthrew the tables of the money changers and the seats of them that sold doves. And he said unto them, It is written, My house shall be called a house of prayer, but ye have made it a den of thieves. Now, I, I don't know about you, but when I, was, when I was a child, maybe even as an adult, this is one of my favorite moments in all Scripture, right? When I was a kid, this was the way I wanted to enjoy Jesus. I, and forgive me for some of the, the secular imagery today that you've been forced, that's been forced upon you, but in my mind, this just showed me that Jesus was my spirit spiritual, incredible Hulk, right? Walks in the temple, throws this righteous temple tantrum. But let me just warn you, this is neither the messianic incredible Hulk, nor is it a temple tantrum. Jesus does this twice, as I mentioned, the first time you see in John 2. Then you see the, the, the other at the end of his life in Matthew 21, Mark 11. I didn't bring the Mark 11 text here because we're going to be there in a, a few months. Uh, but the matter, of a fact, the matter of fact report that Matthew gives us here, that Jesus went into the temple and cast out the money changers. One, I need to see that on video someday. Two, it suggests a deliberate purpose, a planned, a planned protest where Jesus cased the temple compound the night before. And you can see that in Mark 11, by the way. Jesus entered into Jerusalem and into the temple. This is the night before. And when he had looked round about upon all things, and now the eventide was coming, he went out unto Bethany with the twelve. So Jesus, the night before this, he comes into the temple, he sees what's going on, and it's almost as if you can assure yourself that Jesus said, Tomorrow, I'm going to show my righteous anger at this. Jesus enters the temple intent on making a scene. 
doesn't mean that it was cool and calm, but it does mean he knows exactly what he's doing. There's a calculated method to the madness. And the only direct words from Jesus in this scene are actually quotations from Isaiah and Jeremiah. You have them there in in your handout. In Isaiah 56, verse 7, Even them will I bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices shall be accepted upon mine altar, for mine house shall be called an house of prayer for all people. The second part of Jesus' statement is found in Jeremiah when Jeremiah 7, 11, is this house which is called by my name become a den of robbers in your eyes. Behold, even I have seen it, saith the Lord. So in, in this moment of righteous anger, Jesus recites the prophet Isaiah, recites, recites the prophet Jeremiah, and everybody in that temple knows who he's reciting. This moment where Jesus enacts a shocking symbolic drama to demonstrate the corrupt state of the temple and its leaders. They're undermining the rule of God. They should be upholding. They should be upholding effectively, cre- upholding, effectively creating, a, a, in doing so, a godless haven. They're, this is what's going on in the greed and the, the self-serving exploiters. And Jesus is angry at this. Now, let me just say, don't misapply this text. Hear me. The people in the temple are serving a necessary good. Jesus is not opposed to the temple. These people are there to facilitate temple business. Somebody would come from a long way away. They're not going to carry an animal from all the way from the Sea of Galilee to Jerusalem. So they'd come to the temple and they would buy their sacrifice. This was necessary. The problem was these people had... Had they were guilty of exploiting the people they should be serving, including including poor and vulnerable widows. And they had perverted the use of the temple. They had perverted the house of God, which was the place where sinners could come to offer sacrifices, to fellowship with God, and to be assured of His grace. It was to be a place of prayer, and it had become a den of thieves, Jesus said. What was the point? These people had dishonored God's purpose in the temple. They had dishonored God's purpose in the sacrifices. They had taken advantage of people knowing that these people couldn't carry a lamb from Galilee. And so they would constantly upcharge and make money off these people and and take advantage of people because the people had to offer sacrifice. And so the demand was high, and so they raised prices, took advantage immorally. And God had been dishonored by these people who were supposed to be doing good. And Jesus is righteously angry. So here's the point of this. Do you and I, do you and I pray that the Lord will give us a righteous anger when God is dishonored? Oh, we care a lot about our honor. Do we care about God's honor? Does it matter to us when God is dishonored? Hear me. Does it matter 
Let me, let me meddle a little bit here, okay? Does it matter when God is dishonored by what we watch and what we do? I'll never forget, I grew up in a Christian home and my dad was in ministry. Maybe this seems foreign and a little bit crazy to some of you, but I grew up in a home and we had a movie rule. We watch a movie, if there were two curse words, the movie was done. Maybe some of you grew up similar to me. No, I was not in an Amish home. It was a TV. I'll never forget. I'll never forget. I was a young teenager. My brothers and I were watching a show. And we knew the rule. My dad was in the other room. Came, He heard, kept hearing, kept hearing. He was patient, he was patient. He expected his four boys to do something about what they heard. My dad walked in in the days of VCRs. He quietly ejected the, the, the tape. And my dad proceeded to throw it against the wall. And he said, in this house, we will not dishonor God. Now maybe you think that that's a little extreme. The question to you is, does it matter to you when God is dishonored? Don't throw the VCR tape against the wall if you don't want to. But is there something where the line is crossed? Along with that, do you want to believe in a God who is not angered when God, when, when God is dishonored? Do you want to believe in a God who is not angered by injustice, by evil, by human sinfulness? Would you ever want to live in a world where God was not angry by the evil we've seen? And I would argue you don't. You don't want to live in a world where God is not righteously furious with human sinfulness. Jesus gives us a picture of that in Matthew 21. Let's conclude with the third one. And that is Jesus' anger at death. Jesus' anger at death. I want you to think about this. Look at John 11, and look at verse 33. I want you to see Jesus' profound fury here. When Jesus therefore saw her weeping, this is speaking of Mary, the context is the death of Lazarus. Jesus already saw Martha. He said to Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. He that believeth in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. He gets to Mary, and Mary's weeping. And the Jews also weeping, which came with her. Notice these words. He groaned, speaking of Jesus, he groaned in the spirit and was troubled. And said, where have you laid him? And they said unto him, Lord, come and see. Verse 35, Jesus wept. Then said the Jews, behold how he loved him. And some of them said, could not this man which opened the eyes of the blind have caused that even this man should not have died? Jesus, therefore, again groaning in himself, cometh to the grave. It was a cave, and a stone lay upon it. Now, I want to pause there, or stop there, I should say. Let me, let me kind of give you the framework of the text so that you understand Jesus has been along, he's been away from Mary and Martha and Lazarus. They live in Bethany, just over the Mount of Olives, from 
Jerusalem. Jesus told the disciples that Lazarus was dead. Now stay with me. Jesus comes. You see the, the moment there that takes place. Some of them that are there are thinking, man, this guy, he, he gave sight to the blind. They're probably thinking he helped the man with a withered hand. Could this not have, this man, could he not have stopped Lazarus from dying? So that's, a, that's a valid human question. Could not God have stopped this? Why didn't he stop it? But in verse 33, we see the phrase, he groaned in the spirit. You might find fascinating that that word groaned means that Jesus snorted with fury. That's, that's, the, that's the Greek imagery. He's, he is furious that death is a thing. Furious. As he approaches the grave, he is in the state of irrepressible anger. Death, listen, death makes us angry. It's always too soon. It's painful beyond words. Have you ever walked through grief following the death of someone you love dearly? I know many in this church have. Loss of children. Death of a spouse. Death of a parent. And the pain is beyond anything that you've known. And here's what I want you to, there's several things I want you to get here, but I want you to get this. While death makes us angry, Jesus joins you in the anger. He joins you in the anger. B.B. Warfield says this about this moment. He says, inextinguishable fury seizes upon him. Speaking of Jesus, it is death that is the object of his wrath. And behind death, him who has the power of death and whom he has come into the world to destroy. Tears of sympathy may fill his eyes, but this is incidental. His soul is held by rage. The raising of Lazarus thus becomes not an isolated marvel, but a decisive instance, an open symbol of Jesus' conquest of death and hell. What John does for us is to uncover for us the heart of Jesus as he wins for us our salvation, not in a cold unconcern, but in flaming wrath against the foe. Jesus smites in our behalf. He has not only saved us from the evils which oppress us, he has felt for and with us in our oppression and under the impulse of these feelings has wrought our redemption. The inextinguishable fury of Jesus that Mary and Martha and others and Lazarus have come to experience the pain of loss, the pain of death. And the question sits out there, why didn't Jesus stop it? If he's that angry, didn't he stop it? And here's the, the point of the Gospels, is that Jesus' anger at death meant he was going to do something about it. That's the point here. That Jesus looked on and in holy wrath, he said, I'm going to do something that will deal with this problem. His holy hatred 
that Jesus has in this moment is very tangible for us. Because he hates with that holy hatred what you that have lost those you love have walked through. And in your grief, Jesus grieves. But Jesus is not just angry. Have you ever been so angry that you could do nothing about it? Couldn't fix the situation? You feel helpless? Jesus is angry. And he's the one to fix the problem. He's the one to fix it. And he does that for us in his death and his resurrection. Jesus won for us. His righteous fury from John 11 took him to the cross, to the Jesus of the cross. He died. He died the death that we have watched others die, yet Jesus has conquered death so that death is not going to have the final word. Death has been swallowed up in victory, Paul said. Death and all its tentacles are terrifying until something stronger than death dethrones death. Until life invades where death once ruled and saves the dying and sets the captives free. And that's the point of the the death and the resurrection of Jesus is Jesus not only saves you from sin, He takes death's power away from you. And so, in Jesus Christ, you and I are truly no longer slaves to fear and death. You are being resurrected. You are being resurrected by the resurrected one. And those you love, and those you miss, and those that you're angry that they are gone, They know Christ as their Savior. They, too, will be raised. Here's my encouragement to you today. If you've walked through seasons of death, rejoice that Jesus is angry at life because he did something about it. These are three instances today. Three instances and I'm going to crash land the plane here. And I'm going I'm to conclude by these few words. B.B. Warfield said about the holy anger of Jesus. He said, it would be impossible, therefore, for a moral being to stand in the presence of perceived wrong, indifferent and unmoved. The emotions of indignation and anger belong, therefore, to the very self-expression of a moral being as such and cannot be lacking to him in the presence of wrong. Here's the point. Because Jesus is holy, Jesus would contradict his own holiness if he did not get angry over sin and holy death. That's the point. If Jesus' scripture is true, and I believe it such, that Jesus is the sinless son of God, then he who is sinless cannot look on sin without becoming angry. 
We cannot look on death and see the effects of the fall, the curse of sin, and be unmoved. That is your Savior. So if we're going to be angry in the way that we see Jesus angry, let me give you a couple things here in closing. One, learn to be righteously angry. I know this sounds crazy. Learn to be righteously angry. Consider what Jesus does and pattern that. Can I just say, pattern that, mom and dad. Do not be consistently selfishly angry, but pattern for your children a righteous grief and anger over sin and hard hearts. Learn to be righteously angry. Secondly, give place for God's wrath. In Romans 12, 19, we see these words, and we we know them. We know the last part, and we like it. Dearly beloved, avenge not yourselves. Paul says, but rather give place unto wrath, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, saith the Lord. We love that last part. God's going to get vengeance. But you know what Paul said before that? He said, give place. What's he saying? Allow God's vengeance in God's Give place. We would almost say it in our new vernacular, you need to give space for God's justice. When you've been wronged, let God fix the wrong. Number three, rest assured that Jesus in righteous anger has done something about sin and death. I I was walking back from this in my own thoughts and I was thinking, you know, this is not a very Christmassy kind of a message other than the Grinch. Not a very Christmassy kind of a message. Let me conclude with this. Christmas. Christmas is God doing something about sin and death in His Son, Jesus Christ. And so this Christmas, rejoice in the anger and the fury and the wrath of a holy God and a holy Savior. If you're here today and you don't know Christ as your Savior, Here's what you need to know. Jesus already took all of your sin on him. He died in your place. You can place your faith in him and he will save you. If you don't know that, we'd love to tell you how you can know. Let's bow for prayer. Thanks for listening today. If you're listening for the first time, we would love to hear from you. Maybe you have a question about the gospel of Jesus. If so, we'd like you to send us an email at hello at ravenswoodbaptist.org. If you're a regular listener to our podcast and you would like to donate to the media ministry and outreach ministry of Ravenswood, your gift would allow us to do more in an effective way to get the gospel out. Thank you for partnering with us in ministry in Chicago and around the world.